0: The format of this meeting is two 10-minute speakers followed by our information break and then our main speaker who will speak for 30 minutes. Our first 10-minute speaker is Ryan. Hey everyone, I'm Ryan. I'm an alcoholic. Um, Awesome to be here. Uh, I have a sponsor. I sponsor three men. Uh, I chair a meeting on the Upper West Side called Hargrave. Um, and tomorrow I hope to celebrate two years. Um, uh, so, two years ago today, things were looking pretty bleak, um, and I was gifted a small glimmer of willingness uh, out of desperation to make a phone call, um, and truly change the course of where my life was going. So if you do have that small glimmer of willingness, I encourage you to jump. Um, You know, I I drank from the ages of 18 to 24, um, so not a very long career. Um, But there's no more testing that I need to do. I'm an alcoholic. I belong here. Um, You know, I I drank to seek relief um, from a lot of self-doubt. Terrible insecurity, Um, several other demons that this program has allowed me to to face head on. Um, And, you know, again, right, like I'm an alcoholic. I, I, what one to three drinks, if that felt good, imagine what four to seven would feel like, you know? And once I start, I can't stop. So four to seven was happening inevitably, and uh, it takes me to a very dark place. Um, The frustration and helplessness that I felt um, every morning, not understanding how it happened again, I would look my parents and friends and family in the eye and say, I have it like, do not worry, I got this. And hope against hope, right, like, that I would grow out of this, um, that this was a stage in my life. Um, And then there came that period where I didn't really know, like, is this going to turn out okay? Like, I don't see a world where this works out. And it's a very scary place to be, um, you know. And ultimately, uh, this isn't my first go-round. I'd been here before. Um, wasn't ready the first time. I uh, learned some things. Thank you for the information. I'll see you when I'm forty. Um, that that was that was kind of my attitude towards it, and. Um, Again, it it beat me down, and it has a tendency to do that. We don't get here on accident, right? Um, so, on you know, December twelfth of twenty twenty one, you know, I found myself, you know, on the other end of not a very nice phone call uh, from my father. Um and for some reason that day um i, I right like that would that ended up being what I needed whether it be, and I will get into my higher power and how I cannot do this alone because that's just facts um but. Personally, I didn't have much self-worth at that moment. Um, It became painfully clear that what I was doing was not only affecting me, right? Because if if it affects me only, that's fine. Um, But I was bringing down a lot of other people, uh, people that I love more than anything. And um, I scared a lot of people. you know this disease takes me to hospital beds uh, I mean countless apologies right um, a place where I no longer want to live and uh it's that's not the case today um, I walked into uh this meeting actually, when I was counting like seven days, you know, got up, said my day count, peed my pants, I think, and then, um, and uh, you know, but and there were a lot of nights in that that first ninety days that I was like, just get my butt home into bed, um, do not make a right or a left into one of these bars. Um, And I don't know, I I was guided. I, I, again, I'll talk about the gift of desperation. Um, I will do whatever my sponsor tells me to. Believe in whatever you tell me to. Because I'm out of options. My best thinking no longer works. And I, 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 again, fancy myself an intelligent human. And my best thinking gets me nowhere. So I need to lean on the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, um, I, I talked to people who were going through what I was going through. I kept hearing my story over and over again. Um, you know. I, and again, I didn't grow up in, in an alcoholic family, was not on my radar. Um, so accepting I was an alcoholic took a long, longer than it probably could have or should have. Um, I work the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous because that's what my sponsor told me to do and my sponsor is a man that I look up to uh, and has what I want um, which is a kindness and um, a peace of mind. Um, He's crazy too but it's fine Um, because I am too and uh, you know we we go through it and there are things in my life there are other demons that I deal with um, other th- outside of alcoholism that never would have gotten addressed if it weren't for these rooms and working the steps and, and for me rigorous honesty because I did not have the capacity to be honest. And I try my best to be honest in all of my you know, actions today. Um, I share it in meetings, I share what's going on with me. Um, I take service where I can. Uh, I'm taking three guys through the steps right now, they save my ass on every every day. Um, I love them and they bring me my own problems, you know, and it's incredible to see these people grow. Um, it, I mean, I don't. I don't know what my life looks like today if I don't send a text to an alcoholic who puts me in touch with another alcoholic who puts me in touch with an alcoholic. <laughs> you know, I, and when all else fails, talking to another alcoholic gets me out of it. Um, and I will talk about my higher power briefly. Uh, it's it's. You know, you, you, we say the word God a lot. And um, that had a, I guess it, it, it hit a little bit, you know, the word God. Um, but if I can believe, right, that my finite thinking in this infinite universe, thank you, infinite, you can't, I can't wrap my head around the word infinite. So I'll surrender to infinite. And I look at my life today in awe of the problems that I face, in like the best way. I cannot believe I get to complain about work. I cannot believe I get to look at my electric bill and be like, whoa, a little high. I stood next to my big sister as she got married. I showed up for her. I show up for my family and for my friends and all the cash and prizes that may come. I show up for the people that matter the most to me. Um, And that's a miracle, so thank you.
1: Our second ten minute speaker is Kimberly. Hi family, my name is Kimberly, and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. Hi back. Um, My home group is the St. Nicholas group, the oldest group in Harlem. Um, My sobriety date is January 24th, 2011. I have not had any to or desire to drink again, thank the Lord, one day at a time. I am humbled to be here and honest, a lot of you. Okay, here we go. My experience, strength, and hope. Where do I start? Um, I'm the youngest of eight children. I was born and raised in Harlem, USA. Um, my, my mother was an alcoholic. My father was an alcoholic. And um, most of my family members, most of my family, my aunts and uncles, um, had the disease as well. Um, So I was an alcoholic in the, you know, in the cut waiting, I guess. I didn't have to wait long because there were, there were always cups of booze all around the house um, that I could experiment with. Uh, They had parties. I made boilermakers. I was seven years old. Um, I like how it made me feel. I like the attention I got, whether positive or negative. I got the, so Okay, so, uh, uh, so I'm drinking at 7. Uh, at about 11, I'm outside drinking, but then it's um, Old English 800. If anyone knows about charcoal filter, <laughs> wow. Um, you could put Cristal in front of this alcoholic, and you could put Old English in front of this alcoholic. I would choose the Old English. That's, that's, the, that's the type of drinking I did. Um, so guys, I was born in poverty. Uh, eight of us um, in a small apartment building. And there um, wasn't a lot to do there in the house because there's, you know, we, never, we never had food, never had any real structure. So I was left to my own devices. Uh, and boy, was that fun, you know, going out uh, past dark. As I said, my mom um, had some mental problems, so she didn't quite check on me so I could be anywhere at any time, doing anything. Um, I was also taken out of my home at a very young age um, because I was abused by my brother. So I was raised in a group home. Um, Then I had separation issues from my family and I drank some more. Um, And this drinking, it's a good idea because as I said, um, it it took me out of myself and um, Make me the center of attention. I was the youngest of eight. I needed to be the center of attention. Uh, if, you, if we were out and about, I'd be boisterous. I'd try to control every conversation. Um, it's, it's kind of funny that I'm, I, I was in the arts um, where a lot of drinking took place. So I needed to be an actor. I needed to perform. I needed the attention. Um, and I got it, I got it a lot, um, but it was, it it, it it took a different course because I would get, Kimmy, you're so crazy, and I thrived on that, especially drinking, you're so crazy, and then like 10 years later, that statement took a different turn, like Kim, you are crazy. <laughs> um, <clears throat> figured that out. Um, <laughs> What can I say? My drinking history. went away to college, drank some more, um, got jobs, drank some more. I would always quit a job before I was fired because that job needed me. Um, I didn't quit the job if I needed the income, however. Uh, my, my disease progressed, um, uh, I experienced homelessness, I was living in three quarter houses, it uh, didn't matter where I lived as long as I had a drink. Um, I'm a paralegal and I had a very good career if I ever showed up. I show up on payday. Uh, When I was about 30 years old, I was diagnosed, I was taken to the hospital, I'd never been hospitalized in my life. Um, I CICU, they said to drink again is to die, had severe pancreatitis. That didn't scare me. I think I was sober for 90 days. I went, came back from the hospital and started analyzing my lipase level. Oh, I need the enzymes and just ridiculousness. Uh, instead of like, just don't drink, Kim. I didn't know that. Um, I came into the, I, well, I, I did it, with the homelessness, I did a lot of detoxes and rehabs because. Everyone told me I had a problem, so I'd go away for you to rest up a couple of days, to eat some food, to get my pancreas right so that I could drink again. And then again, off to the same races, I just didn't see how the consequences of my actions. Or maybe I did see, I just didn't care. I guess I just didn't care. Um, at the time, so um, in and out of rehabs and detox, and I think I've been to every single rehab or detox in New York City. I tried AA, in fact, I I went to a lot of AA meetings uh, intoxicated. They were kind, they did not ask me to leave. They just said, don't speak. I didn't get it, I I was (laughs) ego-driven. I still wanted to say something, but something's on my mind. I'm so happy they tolerated me. Um, The end of my drinking uh, days, thank you, Jesus, um, was during one of my uh, rehab experiences, Um, I was at Metropolitan Hospital, and with my ego, I said, there's no way these people can help me. I'm going to go relax for four or five days and, uh, and, um, you know, come back to my normal stuff actually it was my job that told me you know <laughs> you, you go get some help because I called in well I called in late and then I called it at later said I'm gonna be there and I called in later and it just slipped out of my mouth I'm drunk they said what are you gonna do about it of course what I was gonna do about it was go to rehab to please you and then go back to my my regular activities um, as God would have it that did not happen I laid in that bed and I looked at someone opposite with me who was uh, recovering from something else, judged them, of course, I didn't have this white light experience, like, I don't want to do this anymore. Once they encouraged me, once I got out of uh, rehab to go immediately to AA, and that's where I am, I ain't going nowhere. Um, I love service. I've been in service since... um, since I've been in the fellowship, Um, privileged to serve as your area treasurer. Um, That's beyond my wildest dreams, someone trusting me with a dollar. Mm -hmm. Living beyond my wildest dreams is the hope I have today. I went through something unimaginable these past two years, including an assault Everything in, everything in me said, you know, respond back. But everything I know told me to hold on, let go, let God. God introduced me to something else after that experience. Um, and I'm really living behind my wildest dreams because I took in a kid um, who needed some help having... I have absolutely no idea what to do. But I know I'm keep giving him good shelter. Um, and good guidance, something um, I could abuse uh, when I was at that point. Um, I, love, uh, I love step three, made a decision to turn my will over to the care and protection of God. I can't go wrong. He, You got it, God, if this is my life, in whatever form or fashion it may be, I know it is his will for me. So I go through some things, uh, of course we all do, but I, I know a drink won't make it better today. I know that for certain. I know there's a cement wall between me and that next drink. But I also know my disease is cunning, powerful, and baffling. And that alcohol is a liquid go right through that cement wall. So I stay in in gratitude, I stay in service, and I give back to the program that has given so freely to me. My name is Kimberly, and I'm an alcoholic. (laughs) Main speaker
0: tonight is Tommy.
2: Hello, everybody. Um, my name is Tommy I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic and before I uh, get into my name rank and serial number I just want to thank um, the Atlantic group for asking me to speak and particularly preacher and uh, Ron and anyone else involved in securing the speakers and also I just want to thank um, I'm always reminded when I come to an Atlantic group meeting how many people and how many service commitments it takes to make such a a large and uh, sophisticated and tight meeting take place. So thank you everybody who uh, worked so hard to make this a reality. I know this is an important meeting for me and for other people. Um, My sobriety date is July 10th, 2009. Uh, My home group is the 79th Street Workshop. I have a sponsor and I have sponsees and all but one of my sponsees in turn has their own sponsees. I've only recently started sharing that as part of my introduction because I want to remind myself and anyone else for which it would be helpful that, um, you know, it's possible that what I share with a sponsee is something that they're in turn going to share with their sponsees. And you know, for a long time, and I'll get into this in a little bit in my story, I really didn't have a program. I was coming to meetings and I wasn't drinking, but I didn't have a program and you know my fear is because in my own sobriety in my own life this program saved my life many times and i mean not metaphorically saved my life for real saved my life and you know i started to become very fearful of the fact that you know everybody talks about uh this is a gift of grace to hold on to we have to try to give it away but most people don't finish the second part of that statement, which is and you can't give away that which you don't possess, right? And so I was one of those people that was giving away the, that which I didn't possess. So I like to call myself out on that right up front. Um, the other thing that I've taken to do more recently in my qualifications is to let you know right up front that I have a higher power in my life today, and that higher power I refer to as God. And you know, for me, Um, I can sometimes get a little dogmatic about the program and um, particularly the book but for me I really have a a fatal form of alcoholism it's chronic like just about everybody else's but for me every time I picked up um, it took me to a really bad place very quickly and each time I had periods of abstinence um, and I would pick up again the the speed with which I would get to a darker, more dangerous place and the volume of drinking and the volume of destruction was really kind of extraordinary. You know, So starting at the beginning, I grew up in a deaf household. Didn't make me an alcoholic, but it certainly made me feel different than all of you and everybody in my life. You know, my parents were really hard-working, um, loving, kind of normal family, but you know, looking back now through you know, kind of recovery and therapy and hindsight and some humility, I realized my mother was really affected by her deafness. She um, really um, felt very self-conscious and less than. And what she did that many people do um, and imparted in me is she felt that if she was perfect, she'd be accepted, and people wouldn't measure her by her deafness, but she'd be measured by her superlative actions. And so the level of perfection she held herself to, held me to, my sister, my father, and people in her life and our family was intense. And she was emotionally and verbally very intense. Loving, but like, you know, squeeze you just till your eyes pop out. And, <laughs> and, uh, and so what I realized, I inherited or, or modeled that kind of low self esteem and just be faster, stronger better harder working, and then you 'll just like me and so what I turned into is what I refer to as an emotional thermometer you know um, you know first of all, sorry, Ryan and Kimberly, thank you for not only great qualifications but going first and letting me have a chance to get warmed up and and, and let my nerves subside a bit but you know I um, Every place I went in my life until the first time I got into an AA room, I felt like you all got a memo yesterday on how we were going to act today and I was the only guy that didn't get the memo. And the way I dealt with that before I discovered alcohol was I decided that I'm just going to get really good at reading the room. So if you want me to be funny, I'm going to be the funniest. If you want me to be the serious, I'm going to be the most serious. If you want me to be the protector, I'm the protector. If you want me to be the guy that does the work, I'm going to do the work. Whatever it takes for you to like me, love me, accept me, and just not have me be on the outside. I just couldn't be the one on the outside. And so, you know, ironically, um, unlike some of you, I didn't come in until 30 years of excessive Um, alcohol use and really the last 10 years of really really serious uh, alcoholic drinking and so you know I got to almost the age of 50 not only not knowing who I was never even really kind of caring about or thinking about trying to find it out right so all I did was try to follow the script and and try to sort of adapt So, I drank alcoholically for 30 years. The last 10 years, well, I drank excessively and heavily for 30 years. I would say based now on my knowledge of the disease and how Silkworth describes the, uh, you know, the, the physical allergy and the mental obsession, clearly the last 10 years my drinking was textbook alcoholic. And, you know, the, the, the most frightening thing is just, I should also call out right up front, you know, I'm one of those people that lost the privilege of being able to pray for themselves. I have a very real, close, conscious contact with the God of my understanding today, but I lost the privilege to pray for myself. Okay, and I'll explain why. Because in the last two months of my act of alcoholism, I prayed fervently. If I didn't black out, if I fell asleep normally. I prayed fervently every night for God to have me die before I woke up. Didn't have the courage to kill myself, or the really, probably the courage, but didn't have the energy um, at that point to kill myself, but I could not live. And the, if I woke up with a clear head the following morning, my first conscious thought was cursing God because God didn't give me that one request, right? Just couldn't do that one thing, okay? So um, what's really fascinating to me now is since coming into the program and hearing thousands of qualifications, I realize I've heard a lot of times people saying, um, you know, I finally had that gift of desperation, which I did, but had that gift of desperation, or finally surrendered, and I asked God to help me not drink or to just have me stop drinking. And I'm like, when I hear it today, still, almost 15 years later, it's still a revelation to me. Because you know, at my darkest point, I couldn't imagine life without drinking. So it was never even my consciousness to ask God or anybody else. So, but I couldn't physically handle the pain anymore. I couldn't physically handle the demoralization. And so I, um I said, well, I'm, I never even thought to it wasn't like I thought to and said I'm not going to do it. I just never thought about asking God to help me stop drinking. I just said, God, just have me stop living because really I got to a place very not happily but res, you know, resolved to basically be willing to give up everything including my life um, uh, to basically in service to drinking, you know? And and When I look back at it now and the the destructive nature of it, it, it's just, it's hard to comprehend. But it's even more hard for me to comprehend because, you know, as I have more time in sobriety, as I work a better and better program, as my head clears slowly, I'm able to go further and further back, not only in terms of my active drinking life, but also further back into my sort of, you know, childhood the way I lived my life the patterns you know I have some sponsees that don't like the phrase character defects Um, they rather like refer to them as patterns of behavior and I think that's legit and for me it's not so much the patterns of behavior for me it's the patterns of reaction like how do I react to those behaviors right and so for me as a kid I was I didn't know that I was the perfect alcoholic apprentice without drinking I was preparing and practicing to become the perfect alcoholic and what do I mean by that you know I was afraid I had anxiety I had self-esteem issues I maybe because I had deaf parents or maybe because I was just seriously maladapted I was afraid to ask anybody anything And I'm gonna give you two interesting stories about not being able to ask for help I mean Pathologically not being able to ask for help, and as a child, pre-drinking, and then throughout my entire life, and even now, I have to be careful to make sure I ask for help. And also, you know, I don't know if some of you know the the story, but you know, the the Wilson family Bible on the cover leaf has four inscriptions, all within like an 18, 12 to eighteen month period, where Bill is writing to Lois. You know, I swear for once and for all this time, I'm not going to drink, and then like. A few inches down, there's the same statement again. You know, uh, this time Lois, for real, I love you, my long suffering wife, it's over. I've put it down for good, and on and on. So I broke my first oath about not drinking when I was 10 years old before I ever had a drink. Okay? So um, I recently shared this for the first time. So my parents are deaf. They work really hard. They leave the house at 5.30 in the morning and they drop me off at my grandmother's house. My grandmother was a widow. She lived then with her sister who never met. My grandmother, Maddie, lived with my Aunt Bessie, who never married, and my alcoholic uncle, Evie, who was separated from his his wife and daughter uh, because of his alcoholism and was living home with his two sisters. And this guy, Evie, was my whole world. He was my everything. He was my interpreter and access to the hearing world. So I could ask him things that you would ask your siblings, your father, your cousin, your friend down the street, that I couldn't do that for some reason, but I could talk to this guy. And he was, at that time, a mid- to late-stage alcoholic. And eventually, by the time I was around fifth grade, um, he died of... uh, uh, cirrhosis of the liver, a long horrible jaundiced death that I watched every step of the way and I'm 10, 11 however old you are in 5th grade and I'm standing at his coffin looking down at this jaundiced corpse and because it's an Irish Catholic family, they got the lid open thanks very much, scarred for life um, and uh, I, uh, I said to him and I said to God, I will never do that I will never drink. I will never make somebody feel the way I feel right now because of what this thing did to him. Right? I will never become the storm that destroys other people's lives and knocks over other people's homes and I became that guy. I became that storm. You know, I I turned into that. And so You know, I think about that and, you know, I don't, I I would, I wouldn't be honest if I said I was conscious of that during my, my early alcoholism, but I think a lot about it now that, I mean, I was putting every fiber of my being into that promise and it meant nothing, right? Just poof. Okay, now another childhood story about not being able to ask for help. So my mother, I told you, was this somewhat aggressive, high achiever, intense woman and my dad's deafness left him to be this sweet, gentle, introspective, very quiet guy. He let my mother lead the show and he was this really gentle, gentle man. Um, To give you an example, at at his eulogy I remember, um, this is a guy that had no idea, because of his deafness and the way he communicated, he had no idea that people talk about each other behind their backs. Like, so in other words, when you say, oh, Ron's such a great guy, and then you know, when he's not around, oh, can you believe that guy Ron? Oh my God. You know, My father just didn't know people did that. So imagine if you walked around in your life not knowing that. How great we all seem to one another, right? How blessed could you be? Okay, that was my dad. So. The one thing that helped him connect with the outside world was the Boy Scouts. He was born in 1928. So let's say he was a Boy Scout when he was 1940. He had a Boy Scout manual from 1935. We were a very poor household. And if, if you had a shovel from the Civil War, you're not going to Home Depot buy a new shovel. You're using that shovel. okay? So when I, in 1968, wanted to join the Boy Scouts, um, I'm using his 1938 Boy Scout manual. Now, I don't know if you know anything about the Boy Scouts, but the difference between what was going on in 1938 and 1968 is slightly different, Okay, in terms of the Boy Scout manual and just in terms of being a Boy Scout. But that's my thing. And now, thank you, in like two weeks is going to be the next Boy Scout meeting where new kids can come. Now, I've described to you a totally frightened unable to process a person, um, shy, scared, unsure. And these people are all part of a troop and patrols, and they wear the same clothes. They have a uniform, and they know each other. And I'm going to go in civilian clothes next Thursday night and be at that meeting. And I'm terrified. And so um, it turns out that um, that night they're going to have a contest. A knot tying contest and um, they're gonna set up chairs in front of groups of kids and you're gonna go up and they'll say okay tie a square knot and you go and take this rope and you tie it around the leg of the chair and then you come back to the end of the line and anybody that does it correctly um, stays online anybody who does it incorrectly go and sit on the sidelines until it's over so my friend says that's gonna happen the night you're there so I'm like I have to be accepted I have to be like you know liked. So I take that book from 1938 and I study and I practice the knot section. And now it's time for that thing and I'm so afraid I can't look left or right and I go and they say go up and tie it you know two half hitches three half hitches a timber hitch and blah 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 and I just tie a knot and I go down. And once the, the the fog clears I'm the only guy standing and everybody else is sitting over there, and so I think I'm in trouble. So they end the meeting, and the scoutmaster says, uh, "Tommy, can we uh, see you?" And they say, "Well, how did you, how did you know how to tie those knots?" I said, "Well, uh, my, you know, Johnny said we're going to do that, and uh, I studied um, for the." Uh, the knots. But they said, yeah, but how did you know which knots? We told everybody the week before, it's gonna be those five knots. And I said, well, I, I, I figured I did all of them. And they're like, but there's like 50 knots in the book. I said, yeah, well, I studied all 50. And they're like, you know, so that was how I went through life. I'm just gonna do anything it takes. Okay, fast forward. Um, I had been very, very successful in business. And I'm only telling you that because I was the kind of guy that said, if I get you know, just the job situation the way I want, the relationship situation I want, the houses situation the way I want, I won't have to drink like a crazy person anymore. I could just, If all the material stuff lines up the way I want, I can be normal. So what I'm telling you is, on my 40th birthday, I had everything you could ever want on your bucket list. And I proceeded to try to kill myself between the age of 40 and 50 through alcohol and obsessive, self-aggrandizing, psychotic living. We would throw these parties, I was living in the Hamptons, we would throw these parties, these extravagant, crazy parties. And because drugs, alcohol, everything would be there, we had to have an army of sober drivers uh, to take you home or back to the airport or whatever. And what we would typically do is if the, the party was at your barn, the after party would be that I was hosting would be at back at my home. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to be like Caesar, the conquering hero coming back from a campaign entering Rome. So I would manipulate it so I'd be the last guy with the last sober driver to get back to the house. So when I entered my house and you were already there, you know, Tommy, wow, what a party, man, you know, like, and I would be welcomed like a god. That was my, right? Okay, so in the last boat out, if you will, sober driver, Charles, um, he's like, I'm in the front seat and looking back now, I could tell he's looking at me with what has to be described as disgust, right? This rich, drunk, excuse me, um, well, apropos, so so um, I lean over to him, I said, hey Charles, like, how did you get into this line of work, man? And he looks at me and he says, long pause, really awkward silence, and he says, I, um, I used to drink a lot, and uh, I don't drink anymore, and you can make a lot of money driving drunks home on the weekend. <laughs> And I realize now he's referring to me as the drunk, but I'm like, oh wow, I'm with him. Like we're like knowledgeable about this business opportunity. (laughs) But here's the really interesting thing. He then said, after a few minutes, and it was in the springs, and it was very dark, and we're on the way back to um, the village of East Hampton in my place. And uh, he says, and also, I used to drive drunk. And um, so this is sort of like a living amends for me. Now, I don't know anything about Alcoholics Anonymous. I certainly don't know anything about an eighth step list or, or let alone an actual amends or a living amends. I have no idea what he's talking about, but it sounds pretty deep, right? And so forget about Charles, gone, and now we go on for another year or two And it's getting bad and bad and darker and darker and darker. And the last day that I drank, my wife and I were coming from East Hampton in two separate cars to uh, a dinner somewhere close to the city. And we had agreed to meet in somewhere like in Little Neck or somewhere in a little shopping center. Um, And we were going to decide whether we take one or two cars. And I'm in a blackout. I've been drinking vodka like probably a bottle from East Hampton to Little Neck. And I'm sitting in a car staring at Bagel Boss, I remember that place. And, well I don't know I'm staring at Bagel Boss, I found out after. And Ellen pulled in next to me and she's staring at me for 20 minutes before I come out of a blackout and realize she's right there. And then the jig was up for the 25th time. So, just racing forward now to, to really stay in the program. So I found Charles's number in my thing, I called him, he said, oh, Mr. M, you having a party? I said, no, Charles, remember that conversation we had, I said, you know, you said you, you drank but you don't drink anymore, was that like AA? And uh, he said, well, he says, before I answer that, he said, uh, are, you, are you looking, because he, remember, years of watching me. Host parties and drink. Are you looking to stop? And he said it with like such incredulity. Are you looking to stop drinking completely? Like he said it like, like completely? Or are you just looking to cut back? I said, I've tried the cutting back thing. I don't think I can do that. I'm probably going to try to not drink at all. I guess okay. Because he said, I didn't want to tell you about AA because it can really be, it really screws up your drinking, you know? And, he, he, and I said, well, I think I need my drinking screwed up. So he sent me to a website, and I looked up all these East Hampton, Amagansett, Sag Harbor meetings where I got sober. And it just so happened, it was stuff like spiritual solutions came to believe. So I, I get off the website. I immediately called Charles back. I said, listen, man, I don't want like the, the AA for like religious people. Like, you got one for, like, is there one for plumbers or electricians? Because or, we have a lot of trades guys out there. And I just want, like, regular AA." <laughs> Another long pause, and Charles says, what do you mean, regular AA? I said, "Like I don't want that. I, I just, I don't want the religious part. He said, go to this meeting. And so I went to the meeting house in Amagansett. And that was my first meeting. And uh, now, for four, now, I was so close to death. In fact, I was hospitalized right after I stopped drinking. I was so close to death that not drinking and just going to meetings was enough for me. And look, I'm here to tell you with love, compassion, acceptance, and understanding, that I'm sure there are a lot of people that can just go to meetings and not drink and do nothing else. I did that for four years, okay? But what I found out about what I was like and what most people who are like are like that, they don't have anything I want, right? Or anything I need. And so I had to start working the program, but here's how I got there. Four years, remember I used to be an emotional thermometer reading the room while active alcoholic and a frightened, scared child, even as an adult? In AA, I became an emotional vampire. I was feeding off of your sobriety. I was feeding off of your program. If you would say something about your steps or some aspect of what you're doing, I was fast enough on the draw and smart enough to be able to not only digest some of it, and then this fantasy life I had about having a program, I'd glue that together and say something in my share, and it would sound like, I'm doing it. I'm working it, right? <laughs> and you know like the in the, when Bill's story talks about the banker um, musing how the fat checks were coming in and out of the till? Thank you. Um, I was making massive withdrawals on my AA bank account without making any deposits. And all it was gonna take was a crisis to hit and I'd be screwed. And a crisis did hit. My wife's best friend, who's then had five children, lost their daughter in her mid-twenties in a horrific house fire where their daughter, every possession that they had and the house was nothing but a pile of ash in a giant hole after a blizzard and this fire. And if it wasn't for social media, there would be no proof this child existed. Okay, and our world turned upside down, and God came back and gave me a third, a third and fourth gift of grace. First was the family was so devastated and immobilized, and still never fully recovered. They said, "Tom, you're the only one who can uh, do the eulogy." So. I knew for like 3 or 4 days I had to keep it together but I was already planning on how I was picking up where I was picking up I was going through my phone to see if I could find any uh, suppliers of other materials that I would consume I was I was like you know I'm a very organized guy very successful <laughs> businessman I'm like planning and uh and so I had to keep that on hold for about 72 hours because I was going to be the, the person giving the eulogy. I at least could hold it together for that. But then something else happened, a thought, I never asked for help, never ask for help. I called a guy that many of you here tonight know and I asked him if he would sponsor me and he said, no, <laughs> he said, <laughs> for two reasons, he said, one, um, you, um, you have a sponsor right now who needs you more than he needs. He needs you more than you need him, and so I'll work with you, we'll work together. And so he said, look, but you always poo-poo this big book study I've been trying to get you to go to here in New York, well-known big book study, and he says, unless you're willing to go to that with me, I'm not working with you. So I agreed. We went to it, we did it a second time, I think we did it a third time, and then finally the person offering the study said, you know, you guys are like taking up seats like go do your own thing so then I started my own uh, big book study but the point of that is for the first time it took four years so it's never too late it doesn't matter when but I urge you all that whenever you can start start and I started to work the program for real I started to have a real direct relationship with a God of my understanding. I uh, re-committed to sponsoring guys, knowing I now had something um, meaningful and safe to offer. I also made a contract with God, because I had been BSing my way through life and even through AA, and I made a contract with God. And that contract as follows. I know when the next sick and suffering person comes along and asks me for help, I know that the outcome, the results, are between God and that person. OK, but the contract I made is if I'm asked to play a role in it, the outcome is never going to hang in the balance because I didn't do 100 percent on my part. I'm not going to be the weak link in that chain for myself, for my own program or for your program if you need me to help you. OK. And so that's the commitment I made. And so maybe the, the most important thing, I think we're probably getting close to the end, um, um, but today the most important steps for me um, I actually they're all important but I do a fourth and fifth like almost every day and what I try to do is incorporate some kind of fifth step in every qualification okay um, and so I'm living I'm trying to live in all the steps but the ones that I have to live 24/7 thank you are um, 11 10 and 11 and 12 and 11 is I check in with God first thing in the morning now remember I cursed God every morning to take me out of this life. So now my prayers are thanking God for me having another day, and I'm totally cool with that, and I'll take another one tomorrow if it's it's okay with you, right? So I check in with God in the beginning of the day, the middle of the day, and the end of the day on my 11th step. And then I also do a 10th step every evening. And then I'm here to extend the hand of AA. Look, a lot of people say AA made me a different person, made me a better person. AA made me a better man, a better woman, a better person. I don't buy that. Here's what I think. I think through the 12-step program of recovery, through a conscious contact with the God of your understanding, working in the program, living those principles in our lives, we become the person our grandmother always knew we were. Okay? I love you guys. Thank you for my sobriety. I hope you have a wonderful holiday.